Today is February 2nd, 2020. Welcome to Common Ground. The sermon series we are in is called The Gifts of Community. And this sermon is called When Commitment Goes Wrong. And the speaker is Chris Romine. Enjoy. I actually, I actually want to, in the spirit of the sermon, uh, I'm not going to give too much of a sermon today. Why? Because we're a small crowd, but also because we're going to be talking about broken promises. Um, and I think it's important that I don't talk at you to teach you or to think that I could teach you something about broken promises. We all have a number of stories uh, and a number of pains that we carry with us from things that were either said explicitly to us that were then betrayed or things that we assumed and was probably fair to assume in a relationship, either with an organization or a church or work or a family that was then betrayed. And I'll go, if we're going to be really vulnerable today, the ways that we or you, us, uh, have made promises that we haven't been able to keep and perhaps the shame and guilt that we live with as a result of those. So in the spirit of that, why don't you tell us why we changed the lyrics today on the songs. Because um, I don't know if y'all noticed, but we don't call God he a lot. God we call they. Since God is a trinity, we call Jesus he. Uh, the spirit of God is a her in, in, in the Bible. A ruach, the word, is if a, pro, a female gendered. And so there's, some, there's certain things that we are very careful about in our lyrics, and there's songs that we'll take and we'll go, yeah, like 80% of this is good, but there's we're actually want to switch some of this up. And I actually think it's important to note the one that we're going to switch up today, that we switch up today, because they took it away from the Bible verse and they made it something different. So do you want to speak on that for a minute? And you want to pull that nor death? Yeah, so we probably know this song. I think you all sang it because you know it. Um, but normally that there's a verse that in this song that says, my debt is paid. There's nothing that can separate. Did you stumble over it because you're normally saying my debt is paid? Yeah. Um, so this was actually taken from Romans 8, 38, 39, um, where it says, you know, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, um, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can can be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's interesting that when they wrote this song, that what they saw as what separated us from God was some debt that had to be paid on our behalf. Um, and I think it draws also from the theology where it says the wages of sin is death. death. Yeah. And that almost as if humanity had incurred such this, such, um, such separation because of our sin that only Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, could ever pay that back almost to God who was waiting to be paid back. Um, and so we struggle with that theology here, um, this sort of sense that like humanity is sort of severed and only through Christ dying on the cross could God ever forgive us. Um, and in fact, God is forgiving all through the text. Right? God is always reconciling, um, and so 
we sort of went back to the text and said, hey, Romans 8 really talks about the powers and actually the things that actually separate us from God yeah. and not necessarily that depth. Amen. Thank you. And, and, and I think what, uh, as we dwell on some promises not made, I think a funny thing that I can, uh, an interesting conversation that I'll get into people, with people when, I'll, uh, when I will articulate my theology, is that somehow I'm not dependent on the Bible because the way that they've been told we should exclude certain folks uh, is a verse often, I would say, taken out of context and then applied against somebody. Um, it's also never someone like me who's like, my people are counted out. It's always someone where, like, I just so happen to be counted in, but a woman doesn't, or someone who is queer does not, or something to that effect. So I think in the spirit of promises that are broken, I lament um, a Christianity that I was introduced to that actually had the right to go to the Bible and say, nah, I'd rather cross this part out and write a book, or sorry, write a song that makes you think about your debt rather than the beauty of Romans 8 that says all things are reconciled and there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Uh, and if I were to say that out in the street or in front of certain churches, it would be a liberal st stance, right? Uh, but not, not relying on the Bible. So I promise to follow the Bible is, is the last promise I make to you. Okay, um, so in the, uh, this week we'll be talking about when commitment goes wrong. For the last three weeks, we've been in a series about the gifts of gratitude, what a community like ours depends on, and what I would say we as individuals need to depend on to have good community. What do I mean by community? Good coworkers, good family members, good siblings, good children, good parents, good lovers of friends and neighborliness, and good romantic partnerships. How do we build community with someone else? And the answer is, uh, well, sorry, there are many answers. The structure that we'll focus on is from Christine Pohl, who's a theologian, uh, and it is uh, out of the book, Living in Community, and I pulled some from her other book called Making Room. You can go to the next slide. And simultaneously, um, reading these two books, Attached, which Jill introduced me to, so I got to learn about my attachment style, and The Body Keeps the Score, which both point to the biology of humans in need for one another. So the premise of this is that we have never been meant to be best, our best selves as individuals. We are best when we are with other humans. And so the hope is, in a church or a family, I come from a very broken family, and actually probably all of us come from broken churches, so part of the sermon is about the promises of community that let us down in the past, but the hope is that a family serves as a unit that brings good news and light and connection and vulnerability and hospitality to the rest of the world. And the hope is at a church that we don't just gather, right, like we are not meant to gather just so that you hear a sermon, uh, that will break down eventually, you will get tired of my sermons, or that we have great singing from Chantilly, which is always good. But the point that we're trying to, point of what we're doing in church is to model a certain togetherness that looks different than the way the rest of our spheres gather, right? You understand? So maybe a committedness to one another, a mutuality, a vulnerability, uh, and an inclusion that might look different because probably at most of your jobs, I don't know, just here's an example, if someone doesn't have a college degree, they're probably not able to work there. So automatically, inside a job, there's certain criteria that dispossesses some people of life and gives others, typically the educated middle class, 
white male, but others that, that are alongside, the, the ability to be in those spaces, right? Think of a country club. Uh, think of a family. Um, think of a neighborhood. As much as we are perhaps committed to neighborhoods, what often brings us to that neighborhood? It is a similar economic situation, or if we're part of gentrification, which at this point is hard not to be in New York City, we're, we're, we're perhaps um, bringing in a new type of neighborhood into the locale that we're going into. But nevertheless, a church looks different than that because we're forced into a space with people who live lives radically differently, but they're both, all, all are coming, both parties are coming with the hope of some sort of goodness, some sort of togetherness, some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, some sort of no depth, no, no death, no depth, no darkness can separate us from this God. Who is this God? Let's talk about it. We, we probably need to figure out who that God is. Um, I mean, I think when we talk about what God is or who God is, we all use different words and language, so it's, it's in humility that we need to admit we don't always know what we're talking about when we say, this is the Christian God, or this is Jesus, or this is what Jesus did. And suddenly in a church, we're forced into a place where we actually have to take account of our own views and have them be challenged by others who might have different views. And this will be a place where we don't protect the margins or protect the borders of what Christian orthodoxy is, of what in and out is at common ground. In fact, there are people who will put their hands up when we get a real Jesus-y song, and then there will be people who write me an email after a real Jesus-y song and say, I don't know what to do with Jesus because I don't think that Jesus is the only Christ or Jesus was the Son of God or what even, that, what even that means. And if we don't sit in this space with a togetherness that is committed to the interdependence and mutual but varying differences that we have, then we might as well not gather, I would say. And so the point of common ground and our name, I think, is apt. We need each other. We need to be committed to each other. We need to commit to each other on certain ground rules that we agree on. And as a brand new community, we thought this was a good um, seven, eight week series to focus on. The foundation of what's going to build our togetherness. So the first week we talked about, you can go back to the other slide, Lance. We talked about gratitude. Uh, I got to be my best self, which is cynical. And I got to talk about the ways that gratitude has been used as a tool against us, right? When we act, ask for access or equity or inclusion to the same degree that others have it, and those same others tell us that we're ungrateful for what we have. And how this has most predominantly played out in communities of color, in communities that have lower documentation than I have, different nationality, different citizenship status, and uh, it plays out in uh, women living in a male-run world, right? Uh, it plays out in the way cisness and heteronormativity reign supreme and whiteness in a, in a place like America, right? Well, all places, but especially in America, that's where we live right now. And so I got to bring the sort of the, the heat about what gratitude does to communities who are actually perfectly grateful for all that we have, but just being asked to be treated the same. Luckily, Lance, per his disposition and the contrast between he and I, brought it home last week and talked about the gift that gratitude nevertheless brings to a community like ours. Because if there is one thing, these three things that we're going to be focusing on, gratitude, commitment, which I'm really going to be focused on promises, 
and generosity. If there's one thing that this world is desperate for, it is true gratitude. It is walking around the world grateful for what we have. It is true commitment. I will keep my promises with you, sibling, regardless of what we go through. And it is true generosity. What I have is enough, and it's even enough to spare. And I will use it on my neighbors. I will use it on my church. I will use it whatever you think the good life is. If you think higher education is the best thing for the world, give to a, church, uh, give to a school. right? But whatever it is, the generosity of our resources, of our time to even show up in this place is something that looks different than the rest of the places that we travel in the world Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday. So on to promises we go, into commitment we seek uh, an answer for how we can be better committed, better promise keepers, not the trademark, not, not the group, the promise keepers. But uh, does anyone know who the promise keepers are? Yeah. Um, what are they, Paula? <laughs> Enough said. That's exactly what the promise keepers are. <laughs> I think that the promise keepers are, uh, it doesn't matter. Okay. So um, the way that we keep promises to each other is a Christian act. The way we show commitment to one another is the essence of the Jesus story. As I went to look through scripture and as I confronted Paul's book, um, as I started to go, actually, I went back to a philosophical theology book that I had, which is like, was like really thick from a couple years ago, and I only skimmed it. But I, I started to read something because Paul made me realize, Christine Pohl made re, me realize that we are actually stepping out of a certain theological era and into a new theological era, and theology often mirrors philosophy. So Pohl showed that we are moving from a doing my duty era to a doing what works for me era. And the reason that I believe that we, that she's right, that philosophy is right, that we're moving into this postmodern space and that our idea of God is responding to that is because so many of the systems that we entrusted to take care of us and organizations, the economic systems, the social systems, came crumbling down in epic fashion and we watched them just completely fail and tried to make, make sense of what the world was after that. No, that's actually not what happened. They completely failed, and the government took billions and trillions of dollars of our tax dollars and buffeted these people back up. We didn't see a dime of it, and we're still dealing with decreased social services and decreased economic mobility while the CEO of whatever, Goldman Sachs, just gave himself a raise. So the sort of institutional cynicism that we all probably have in this space, whether for churches or corporations, or our political sphere right now, is completely expected. It is also par for the course with where we are in history. And so Paul is saying that we have actually moved from a doing my duty, right, that sort of baby boomer idea of I'm just going to kind of stick with it, to I'm going to do what's, what works for me. A perfect example is just the number of years we remain in a job. Like, clearest example. We average, does anyone know what we average? Does anyone want to guess? 2.3 years for, for people under 40 in jobs. More than a decade for our parents, right? So there's something that we're, that our parents might, there might be some memes like, you know, you boomer, or sorry, you Gen Xers or you millennials. 
are being lazy. I mean, yeah, I'll leave that alone. It's a different world completely. We, we navigate this world completely differently. And so what does it mean from us to move from a doing my duty world to a world that works for me? Well, Paul would say, even though we step into a world that works for me space, it's actually not good for us. It's number one, not good for our biology, sort of what the book Attached will go into, uh, which is a secular book written by a couple brilliant psychologists up in Columbia. But also, Paul says from a Christian perspective, we were never meant to kind of play the field or figure out our options or sort of, sort of keep a loose commitment to things in the event the thing that we're in right now goes awry. And yet, that's exactly how many of us proceed, myself included. I would like to say, and this is what Paul says too, it is not because we are selfish or just want to keep our options open, but it is because we've been deeply bruised by broken promises in our lives that has caused enough pain to keep us from wanting to full stop commit to something else or someone else. Does that resonate with y'all? And Paul, as I, draw, as I drew on the biblical, biblical narrative... Paul, I think, hits this on the head. She says in a quote, I promise, but before I keep the promise, I shall review the situation and then determine whether or not its effects would be better if I stick in it or if I break. And maybe I'll break it. In fact, a commitment to keeping promises for us saves us from continually asking ourselves whether in a particular situation we might accomplish a small amount of additional good by breaking that promise. So we are quite literally conditioned to wonder if the promises that we have right now are meant to be kept. But when we apply these calculations and combine them with our increased good decision-making on how we feel at a particular moment, the whole practice of promises becomes much more fragile and every decision becomes more complicated and we enter into a place where the tough fibers of promise-keeping between two people are no longer. And if the tough fibers of relationality break, what is there to stick around? I thought about the, the biblical narrative uh, in Genesis. I wrote here Genesis story, Jacob's story, Moses story, Judas story, Paul story. I'm only going to tell one of them. The Genesis story, one of the, what, whatever folks want to make of the poem in Genesis 1 um, that, that the Israelites stole from the Babylonians because they said this looks like a good story, that whatever we want to make of that poem, well, it, it tells us a ton. If we can walk away from the idea that the world was made in six days, we can actually start to open this, this poem like a bottle of wine and see how much it says about our humanity. So, in the beginning was God and Adam and Eve. And then the accuser, right, not the Satan, I taught you all that a couple weeks ago, kind of like a prosecutor, comes down and says to the smarter one, Eve, because he knows that if he's going to win Eve over, he's going to win Adam over as well. So he first goes to Eve, and he says, what did God say about that tree over there? And Eve said, well, of course, we should not eat from that. Yeah, but did he really, did God really say that you should not? Yeah. Well, why shouldn't you? Because then you'll be like God, right? And there's this back and forth, this very interesting thing where the tree has always been here for the eating, we have always been able to break a promise that we've wanted to with God. There's always been availability for us to walk that way. And ultimately, the, uh, the Satan outsmarts the smarter of the two, Eve, 
and then easily gets Adam, and suddenly humans are walking away from God under a very simple premise. I think that God is holding out on me. I think, I didn't think before, but now I'm wondering, did God not do enough for me? Is there some portion that I'm not, that's not available to me that I'm not seeing or I'm not achieving or I'm not receiving that God doesn't want for me? And if so, why? And the way this feminist reading that I have from Phyllis Tickle, from the theologian Phyllis Tickle, reads, from the moment that mankind, humankind, broke this covenant, we've been wondering ever since, is there any promise that was true in this world? Because if I can't trust God, who can I trust? So when we walk away from this book, which some folks just look at to wonder how many days it took for the, Bible to be, or for the world to be created... I look at it and say, how telling is it of the human story that we walk away from the garden wounded and wondering if I can trust another person on earth? And in one single generation, blood gets spilled into the earth after that lie. The problem, friends, is that we are living in a world where we have been broken, where promises have been broken, and we have been victim to that. And now we can't help but sit here and wonder, what promises am I to make to anyone with the history that I have? To go worse. Paul points out that the era that we're in is a consumeristic era. Uh, If you've been to a megachurch, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is this ideal where we get our senses so set off. We get so excited, so emotive, that we think that we're having the truest uh, religious and theological experience based on, I don't know, the crescendo of some chords and a free iPad if you sign up for the church, which actually is a real story. So when, when we walk into the world as consumers, then everything looks like a contract to us. Paul says it this way. When we view ourselves as consumers, we tend to think contractually. What does contractually th- contractual thinking do to our promise making? If we bring that orientation to church or to the classroom or to work, it fundamentally changes how we understand relationships. A consumer mindset as the consumer means that my commitments are limited and oriented to filling my personal needs. So, for example, in a church, when church members approach leadership or whatever college students to their teachers, as consumers, they assure, I'm paying and therefore I decide how much I invest and what I want from you. But these assumptions, as Paul says, shrink important relationships to mere economic transactions. Making promises to other things before we make promises to ourselves is yet another issue with promise making. The way that we, I am one who overextends myself, overpromises, fills my schedule, has to cancel about 30%. I'm confessing that here, so if we ever go to grab coffee and I cancel on you, I apologize. Please don't judge me. But even that is a promise that's not made first to myself, that's made to another person. So I don't want to say that all promise breaking is inherently selfish. But when we sit in a world where we claim the Jesus narrative, someone who walked with 12 pretty annoying folk, two of them knowing 
he knowing that they would betray him, we have to make amends with the way we struggle to keep promises. We have to bring our pain of broken promises to this table and ask that Jesus' body and bread, body in the bread and blood in the wine, cover us from the pain that has come from the ways corporations and churches and parents and loved ones and friends have let us down. And reciprocally, how we've let some folks down ourselves. This is not meant to be a hopeful sermon. I'm not bringing a hopeful sermon today. That's next week. Come back to see what the gift of promises means for a community like ours. Come back and see what the gift of promise means for your romantic life, for your friends group, and for how you interact in corporate America, especially in a city like New York that is quite vicious, where you are expendable and I am expendable. Come back next week and hear that. But I'll end the sermon here.